every affliction has a, a unique kind of remedy. Um, <clears throat> for the last 10 days, I've been <clears throat> doing this a lot. Um, thanks for the mountaineer. Um, it's really wonderful. Uh, and you know, my, if you don't, my wife, if you hadn't heard already, she, she's sort of an outside the box thinker when it comes to treatments. Um, we tried the leeches at one point. Um, in honor of the Reformation, we were thought, thinking about doing a bloodletting, you know. It's a joke. <sighs> sort of. Um, eh, eh, now we're done. Every, every affliction has a unique form of treatment. You don't treat cancer the same way you treat a cold. You just don't. And yet, every affliction has some things in common that you do with every single one. Um, uh, if you're sick, you, you, you get a lot of rest, um, drink a lot of fluids, um, you stay away from rich foods, um, you probably give up mountain biking for a while, right? Um, all of those just sort of natural, intuitive things that you do in every form of affliction, those are the things you should do. And that's true when it comes to caring for the body. The question is, is there anything consistent across the board when it comes to the care of the soul? When you're in a hole and it feels like despair, is there anything consistent about that condition? As, uh, as one of your poets around here once sang, um, too tired to sleep, uh, too angry to pray, uh, too far gone to get back now, uh, too lost to find my way. You're in need of care of the soul. And in moments like that, is there anything you can do across the board that will be of help? We're in the Psalms for the season of the fall. And we're going to listen to a psalm today of a psalmist who is in a hole. Who is in need of care of the soul. Who is full of despondency and despair. Uh, One translation of this text calls it depression. And that's a word that if you just say it, you touch off all sorts of controversy. Because is depression all about just what you're thinking? Or or is depression all about a chemical imbalance? Or is depression about forces and influences that are beyond explanation or even beyond description? That's a controversy that people want to wade into. And I'll just have to tell you straight up, Psalm 42 is not out to resolve that question. But Psalm 42 is out to offer us a case study, I think in what it means to have yourself dug out of that hole, of what it means to care for the soul. Does Psalm 42 answer all of your questions? No. Is there more to it when it comes to the care of the soul? Perhaps. But I would like to argue here on the front end that it is not less than what Psalm 42 has to offer us in the way of the care of the soul. And as I listen to his testimony, I hear four things at work when it comes to caring for the soul, under four participles. Acknowledging, remembering, attending, and choosing. Acknowledging, remembering, attending, and choosing. We're going to go there. We're going to listen. And we're going to see if we can find out what does it mean to care for the soul in affliction. I wonder if you might stand if you're able to hear from Psalm 42. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. 
My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. And therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep, calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The care of the soul is, first of all, about acknowledging. And what I mean by acknowledging is what I take from what I find in verses 1 through 3. As the deer pants for the waters, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. And and as soon as I say that, I'm betting that many of you start hearing a song in your head. Ready? As the deer panteth for the water. Okay, stop. The reason I stop you is not to be disrespectful. It is because with all due respect to Martin Nystrom who wrote that song, If you want to hear what the psalmist is actually saying here, that word for panting is not simply that the deer is thirsty. That word for panting means that the deer is desperate. And so it might even be more fitting for that song to be redone in a more dissonant chord, in a minor key, because that's what the psalmist is getting at here. It's desperation. It is an agonized search for relief. And in those first few verses, you do not hear a psalmist stifling his condition. You do not hear him sort of just sort of muscling through and saying, it's going to be okay. You hear him openly declaring his condition. His condition is bad. Now, we don't know the setting in which he's writing. We can make some educated guesses. But what we can be clear of is this. He is at his wit's end. He is being honest. Which is sort of a remarkable thing when it comes to a religious text. Because the bitter irony of most religious places, if not in churches, is what an Old Testament scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann said once. He said, churches should be the most honest place in town, not the happiest place in town. Am I right? See, we think that by coming into a place where we speak of joy and of hope, that to speak honestly about our despair, that we're going to lose something from one another. We're going to lose some sort of respect or love from everybody else. And so we kind of pretend that it's not bad. But in fact, folks, 
It's the grace of the Lord that liberates us to that kind of honesty. Because if his love is steadfast, then I'm not having to worry about whatever love I might lose from you by being honest about my condition. The psalmist is being honest about his condition. He is expressing his anguish and an anguish that is about to think that maybe God has forgotten him, that maybe God has rejected him, that maybe God isn't even there. There's a scene I want to show you from an episode from Rectify in which Tawny is experienced in the middle of a tragedy. And she is asking aloud, what in the world is going on? And she's asking it before somebody that has a very different outlook. Uh, Listen to her lament. I just don't understand why God would let something like this happen to him. I mean, to anyone, but especially to him. He suffered so much already. I mean, I know it's always a question, but it's always the question. It's one of the big ones. And they say we we can't know God's intention sometimes, that, that it's too big for human understanding, but I sure don't understand this, and I don't see how I ever will. I don't think God plans things like this, Tawny. I mean, why would somebody do that? Especially a god, you know, if they had that kind of power. And, and why would you want to hang out with that, that god, you know? <laughs> Much less worship him, really. So I just have to believe that it's all some cosmic cause and effect or just plain random. Do you believe in God? Well, I believe in evil, so uh, I don't really want to talk about it. Everybody has a theology of suffering. Every one of you has a theology of suffering. Because when you suffer, that theology comes to the surface. But at least Tani is being honest about where that theology of suffering is for her in that moment. She's manifesting her anguish. Just as the psalmist here in Psalm 42 is manifesting his anguish. And it is a cry for relief from whatever oppression that he is facing. But folks, if you're looking carefully into Psalm 42, it is more than just acknowledging his pain. As important and as essential as that is. The acknowledgement is about his duress. The acknowledgement is about his cry for relief. But his acknowledgement is more so a cry for the presence of God in his moment. He says, my soul thirsts for the living God. That's what he needs. That's what he wants. Umberto Eco is a novelist of the last century. And he kind of did what Alexis de Tocqueville did back in the 18th century where he came to America and just sort of observed the religious landscape of the culture. And Umberto Eco did the same. He looked around. He just sort of listened to religious talk, religious presence. And, and he said this at one moment. He said, if you follow the Sunday morning religious programs on TV, you come to understand that God can be experienced only as 
nature and flesh and energy and tangible image. And, and since no preacher dares show us God in the form of a bearded dummy or as a Disneyland robot, God can only be found in the form of natural force, joy, healing, youth, health, economic increment. And then he asks, where is the mysterium tremendum? The holy, numinous, ineffable God. Don't, don't get stumbled there by the Latin phrase. You, you probably can translate it without help. Where is that mysterious thing, that force that makes you tremble? That belief that God is actually bigger than your duress and maybe even bigger than your relief. What he is calling out in most religious purveyors of the day that he was watching is that they tend to reduce the presence of God to little superficial things like, did he help you find a parking space? Because if that's where you live and that's where you think God is mostly interested in, then is it no wonder that when your life turns upside down, you feel utterly cut off? He is wondering aloud, do we believe that there is anything more to God than those tangible material things that we find in his blessing? There is a, a passage from Augustine's Confessions that I read eight or ten times, and I think I get it, but, but David Brooks several years ago in an op-ed piece in the New York Times was trying to figure out what does it mean when religious people say that they love God or that they trust him. And he ended that op-ed piece by quoting Augustine in the Confessions, and I'm going to read it to you here, and don't worry, I'm going to try to explain it yourself to you. But Augustine says this, What do I love when I love my God? Not the sweet melody of harmony and song, not the fragrance of flowers, perfumes and spices, not manna or honey, not limbs such as the body delights to embrace. It's not these that I love when I love my God. And yet when I love him, it is true that I love a light of a certain kind, a voice, a perfume, a food, an embrace. But they are of the kind that I love in my inner self. When my soul is bathed in light that is not bound by space, when it listens to sound that never dies away, when it breathes fragrance that is not borne away on the wind, when it tastes food that is never consumed by the eating, when it clings to an embrace from which it is not severed by fulfillment of desire, this is what I love when I love my God. Oh, Augustine, what did you mean? I think he's getting at this. That there is a way of knowing God that you might find in the simple pleasures that he brings your way. But a different kind of love such that even when those pleasures abate, you do not lose him. That there is more to him than that. And can I say that I can speak to moments like that where the way he speaks to loving God is how I've experienced it? Oh, maybe. I don't know. But he is setting before us something deeper than our duress And folks, also deeper than even our cry for relief. And so in acknowledging our pain and in acknowledging our cry for relief, I think what the psalmist is asking us to acknowledge is not just the pain, but the belief that there might be something even deeper than the pain and deeper than the relief. In acknowledging your pain, if God were only to make himself more present to you without alleviating your circumstances, would you be okay with that? Would I be okay with that? It is the question he lays before us implicitly. And in acknowledging our pain, he is also to let that pain 
let us turn our thoughts to the belief that there may be a God whom we know that is bigger than our duress, but even also bigger than our desire for relief. The care of the soul has something to do with that kind of acknowledging. But implicitly, it also means this too. It's not just about acknowledging. It's also about doing something that he does twice in verses 4 and 6. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. These things I remember. He's talking about not just sort of calling a, a memory to mind and just sort of letting it go in one ear and out the other. He's talking about connecting himself to ideas and experiences that his present moment is obscuring. The remembering here is in distinction to the idea of dismembering, of cutting yourself off from something that is vital to you. He is saying that he has been dismembered, and now he must remember. He must remember something deep. What is he remembering? Again, it comes in verse 4. These things I remember, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. If you were to read the Psalms of Ascent from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, they're short, they're lively, but they are songs that they would read on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They would march in a throng and sing those things to remind themselves of who God had shown himself to be. When I was in Boy Scouts, we would go on hikes, and inevitably, at some point, we would start singing. If you were ever in the military, it's probably likely that on more than one trip, more than one hike, you began to sing to kind of hold yourself together and get through that, that, that hike. Negro spirituals, they're singing to create solidarity among them, but also to believe that there is a hope beyond the present moment. Thursday night, I had the privilege to go into Thomas Wolfe and hear in Garrison Keeler of Prairie Home Companion. And he did a number of storytelling things that you think there is nobody on the planet like he tells stories. But the most endearing part of the night was what he did during intermission. He didn't go to the bathroom. He didn't get a drink of water. He wanders out into the middle of the audience and he invites us all to sing with him. We sang ballads from Americana, but we sang hymns. We sang Silent Night. We sang the doxology. We sang Nearer My God to Thee. And all of these people that come from 35 different places, I counted, they're all sort of brought together in that moment, and they're all singing together to recall something that is part of them. It was wonderful. They're remembering something beautiful and true that unites them together in a communal expression. And that's what the psalmist is doing. There is the story of the skydiver who jumped with his group. And as they leave the aircraft, one of his guys bangs him in the head with his leg. And he goes unconscious. And a bunch of the guys start to notice that he's not responding. And so they come down and kind of do the hand signals in the equivalent of uh, uh, objects in your glasses are closer than they appear, dude. Um, um, it's time to start responding. And when he doesn't, what do they do? They pull his ripcord for him so that he makes it to the ground safely because he had become unconscious to realities. And they had to step in. They had to intervene. The psalmist is remembering a time when the community had to step in and pull the ripcord for him. And you need that. And I need that. Because there are realities to which you and I become unconscious that we need to be reminded of. 
And that's what he is having to remember in community. He's not only remembering those past experiences of God's goodness in community, though. He's remembering something else that you hear in a moment that, that he starts speaking about geography, about being in northern Israel, about being in Mount Hermon and, and Mount Mazar. And you go, what's all that about? And, and that's in the mountains up in northern Israel where the snow melt has come down and these raging waterfalls are right beneath him. And he's just listening to the deafening roar of those waterfalls. Deep, calls to deep. And in that moment, in that very evocative moment, he is bringing to mind something that he knows he needs to remember in his despair. And it's this. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. He is recalling all the ways in which God has been faithful and kind to him and to his people. And that leads him to sing. And that is something that he has to put in his mind. He has to dwell on it. He has to think on it. He has to remember what has been dismembered from his moment. And right now, some of you are sitting there going, are you really saying that the care of the soul is just about me thinking right thoughts? Thinking, encouraging thoughts. Really? That's it? That's all I do? Okay, guess what? There's a few years ago, Time Magazine had this cover. You may have heard of it. I know the folks at the Asheville Drum Circle have heard of it. <clears throat> it's this idea called mindfulness. And it comes out of a Buddhist tradition, although those who purvey it these days kind of try to strip it of all of the, any religious content or form to it. But it's, this, it's premised on the idea that you and I, like at no other time, are receiving immeasurable, innumerable number of inputs from every different direction. And as a consequence of that, our, our attention is so fragmented that we can't focus on anything. And we are overwhelmed by that. We are deluged by all the data that we are just, we, we are unhinged because of that. And therefore mindfulness, um, <clears throat> though it's not one thing I'm told, it's maybe different forms of it, but mindfulness is essentially turning all that off and focusing entirely on the present moment. Giving yourself just to thinking about what is immediately in view, what is immediately before you. Now, there are some critics of that whole practice that say, well, that's interesting, but if, 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 if you just sort of confine yourself to your thoughts about what the present moment might mean, then, then it's really possible that you could sit there and just think about how, in this moment, I am now one moment closer to my death. <clears throat> and that's cheerful. That in thinking about your present moment, you might actually come to discover there are plenty of things at which I'm failing right now. Oh, that's true of my present. What do I do? There are limitations to just sort of practicing the focus on your present without sort of some sort of cast or, or, or framework in which to think. But I, I raise this as a cultural phenomenon to make this point. If the world is ablaze with the idea that there actually might be something to thinking well, then why would you cast out of hand the very possibility that there might be benefit to you thinking about the goodness and faithfulness of God and his steadfast love? When Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, consider the lilies of the field, God loves you more than them. What are you worried about being clothed about? He's asking you to think. When Paul says to the church at Philippi in chapter 4, hey, whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is admirable, think. On these things, he's asking you to think. Is there more to it than that? Sure. It's not less than that, though. The psalmist 
The whole Bible is inviting us to think, to remember that God has disclosed, disclosed himself as the one who is steadfast love. It's about acknowledging your pain and letting that turn you to a belief in God who is bigger than that. It's also about remembering his goodness and his claim to steadfast love. But in doing that, he's also asking you to do something else. He's asking you to attend to your heart. That's the third thing. Twice in this text, you hear him say rather explicitly, without any kind of um, equivocation, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? It's a little bit of self-rebuke. Like, I can't believe I am this downcast. But it is also, is more so, a little bit of self-interrogation. He is asking himself, what have I come to believe that has led me to conclude that God has forgotten me? He is implicitly saying that between, beneath every belief that, that I have been forgotten or that, that despair is the only proper response, there is some other belief beneath that. And he is trying to dig his well, dig the shaft down there to find out what that belief is. Why are you downcast on my soul? Why, why would he want to do that? Uh, isn't that sort of the morbid introspection that we're trying to avoid, right? Like, that only that just gonna make you wrap around a pole. Why, why would he do that? Well, consider two possibilities that might be of benefit to asking that question. Sometimes our despair, if you're gonna admit it, <clears throat> derives from the fact that we have unmet but inordinate desires. That there are things that we longed for, that we did not receive, and we are rightfully disappointed. I mean, if you, God never says, don't be disappointed. He would be a stoic, not the Lord. But there is a line at which we cross that I know is murky between disappointment and despondency at which you have concluded that life can never be good again unless I have that thing. Where did that belief come from? That's why you're asking yourself the question. Why am I downcast, O oh my soul? Is it because I have come to believe that only this and this alone will provide me the happiness in life that I want? If that's where you're going, well, that's a faith statement for which you have no proof. That's one reason why we ask the question. The other reason is this, and I want to be very careful about how we put this. Sometimes despair is from a whole complex of issues that you have not accounted for in any given moment. For I need to say this, that in any given moment, there are five things that you have. You have a body. You have a soul. You have a set of circumstances. You have a set of assumptions. And you have a history. Let me say those things again. You have a body. You have a soul. You have a set of circumstances, you have a set of assumptions, and you have a history. And if you are not taking into consideration all five of those, then the best we can say about the care of your soul is that it's a form of malpractice. Folks, sometimes your body conspires against you. And if you will not acknowledge that, you cannot care for your soul because body and soul are not two separate things. They are one thing integrated together. Why am I downcast? Oh, my soul is inviting that sort of inquiry. Um, Andrew Solomon, you may have heard of him. He's, he's done a bunch of TED Talks. He, he's, a, he's a lecturer in, in the mind and in psychology, and he's very acquainted with depression. 
And he tells the story of him and a bunch of specialists who, want, who went to Africa um, <clears throat> in the wake of one of the genocides and one of the tragedies that befell that continent with a desire to render aid unto those who were just despondent and despair over those, those traumatic experiences that no one just sort of, you know, wakes up from overnight or even within years. And uh, uh, they did their thing, right? Um, but after a while, a, a, a tribal chief comes to Andrew Solomon and says, um, uh, uh, thank you for your assistance, but um, in Africa, we, we respond to grief and despair a little bit differently. We, we actually ask them to go outside in the sunshine. Um, we ask them to beat the drums to sort of get the blood moving. Um, we invite the community to come get involved and, and to be of assistance to them in their grief. Um, you Western specialists, um, um, you invite us to come into a dark room and make us talk about our problems for an hour. And this tribal chief, after telling him that, says, uh, when we saw you all do that, we asked them to leave the country. <clears throat> what is implicit within that sort of jovial and yet honest appraisal about what happened is that there are so many factors involved in anyone, anyone, any person's given despair and despondency that if you are not asking those questions, you are not caring for the soul. That's why you ask. Because attending to the heart is about querying the soul. Not just asking questions, though. He doesn't just ask questions. He doesn't just ask questions of his heart. He also preaches to it. What do I mean by that? When he says, why is there turmoil in me? Right on the heels of that, he says, hope in God. And we think, who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. The hope in God, that's for him. It's for us too. But he's talking to himself. He is preaching to himself. He is asking himself questions and then he is telling him things that can answer his regret or his despair. He has for himself, for just a moment, become his own counselor. And while just a few moments ago we talked about the communal dimension to soul care, he is implicitly speaking here of how at times there is something before us where we have to kind of take our heart in hand and speak to it. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous British preacher in a, in a first chapter of his famous book called Spiritual Depression, he, he makes this observation. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You already know how to think. You already know how to meditate. You just meditate on the wrong stuff. You obsess on the wrong ideas. And I get it. I do too. I've had to ask myself the question this weekend. Why am I like this on my soul? Why am I acting like this? I have to talk to myself. I have to preach to myself. And, and though um, you may think that this is the only novel I've ever read, but Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, <clears throat> there's a moment when Reverend Ames, in writing this memoir to his son, uh, he says, if you ever you are in despair, I should consider what I would say to myself if I came to myself for counsel, there are a thousand, thousand reasons to live this life, every one of them sufficient. It's talking to yourself. That's preaching to yourself. That's attending to the heart. Not only asking your heart the questions, but speaking to your heart certain beginnings of answers. That's attending to the heart. There's a scene in A Beautiful Mind about that famous economist John Nash who suffered mightily and grievously with schizophrenia, who at some point reaches a milestone in his condition. 
And in this scene, he is walking with the man who at first dismissed him, but then later rehired him. And John Nash speaks about the milestone that he's reached in his condition. Listen to that. I was thinking that I might teach. A classroom with 50 students can be daunting for anyone. John, besides, you're a terrible teacher. I'm an acquired taste, Martin. I was hoping there still might be something I could contribute. What about the, um... Well, you know... Are they gone? No. They're not gone. Maybe they never will be. But I've gotten used to ignoring them, and I think as a result they've kind of given up on me. I think that's what it's like with... All our dreams and our nightmares, Martin. We've got to keep feeding them for them to stay alive. Those two guys and a girl were the incarnation of his delusions. John Nash actually only heard voices, but for the movie's sake, they made him into visual pieces. Um, and so he sees them. Th- those are his delusions, walking just at uh, arm's length away. But what he has come to discover that though those delusions will still be present, though those voices sort of still leer at him, he's just learned not to listen to them. He's just learned not to walk in their way. The psalmist's delusion, if you will, is the voice that is saying, God has forgotten you. He has rejected you. And whether those voices are coming from without, and surely we hear that in the psalmist's words, or whether they are coming from within, he is saying, hope in God, for I will again praise him. He is learning that though the delusions might be his, they are delusions he's choosing not to listen to. That's what it is to attend to the heart to taking your heart in hand and preaching to yourself, which all then leads to one last element of what it means to care for the soul. Yes, it's about acknowledging our pain. Yes, it's about remembering his goodness, both communally and personally, and his love. And yes, it is about attending to the heart by both querying it and preaching to it. But this fourth thing is for us to all know that the psalmist is not like accepting his lot. This is not C-3PO. I suppose it's a lot to suffer. That's not the psalmist's intention here. He is asking God to intervene. He says, vindicate me. Send out your light to me. Why would he do that? Because if he believes that God could be in the midst of him and work for his good in acknowledging his pain and remembering his goodness and attending to his heart, then why couldn't he actually work within his circumstances? And that's why he asks for big things, which is implicitly an invitation for us to ask for big things, to ask for God to intervene in our condition. But in asking God to move, he is teaching us the discipline of choosing To trust. Of choosing to trust. Hope in God, for I will again praise you. That's an utterance of hope. That's a sort of defiant way of setting his face like a flint in the wind, in the headwind, and saying, I I will praise you. I will praise you. It will be my hope. That's not a generic optimism on his part. It's not sort of this vague, murky, oh, it's all going to be okay. 
The reason he does that, the reason he chooses to trust is because he's placed his trust in an object, if you will. He has his reasons for trust, and those reasons are in God's faithfulness to him and to Israel over the centuries and the millennia. I say that to you only so that you will realize that notwithstanding the psalmist's reasons for trust, you and I have a greater reason for trust. We have a greater object upon which we might place our trust. And that object of our trust confirms to us a love that is even more profound. A love that is even more steadfast. Because our trust is in one who knew of an even greater adversary. Not some military might that was trying to convince him that God wasn't there, but actually a demonic influence who was out to tell him that God wasn't even present to his condition. We have our trust in one who knew that often in trust there would be pain. The psalmist's oppression afflicted his hope, but in the affliction of Jesus Christ, he seals our hope. Because in Jesus Christ's affliction on a cross, He confirms to us that God is not just mindful or aware of our condition, but that he will not withhold even the most that he could offer to contend to that condition. His death confirms that. To that we look, but not only to his death, but also to his resurrection, because that resurrection also confirms to us that there is a power in this world that can accomplish more than we could ever ask or imagine. That's where our trust is. That's where we place our hope. That's the gospel, if you weren't. Sure. John Calvin, who speaks a great deal about the sovereignty of God, was honest enough to put it this way, to govern and subdue the desires of their hearts and especially to contend against the feelings of distrust which are natural to all is a conflict to which the godly are not infrequently called. In other words, he's saying, if you're a believer in God, Please don't be shocked by the experiences in which you are called upon to fight to believe God's sovereignty notwithstanding in your condition. And that is why we listen to the words of a letter from John Newton to a woman who was deeply beset by her struggle unto whom he wrote plaintively, Come, madam, let us leave our troubles to themselves for a while And let us walk to Golgotha and there take a view of his. Is there more to our struggle for soul care than that? Perhaps, but it's not less than doing what John Newton asks. We must go to Golgotha and take a view of his. Look, I know there are many in this world who are afflicted this day with things external to them, if not physical afflictions. But I would dare say that there are more of us in this room who are haunted by a voice. A voice that speaks to our identity. And if you ever heard of the, uh, if you ever heard of the person Henry Nowen, he said that there are three lies that we believe about our identity. The lies that say, I am what I have, I am what I do, or I am what others say I am or think. And those are voices in us. And we listen to them. But when you come and look at the gospel, when you go to Golgotha and see his, then there are three very different answers that Jesus gives to you in those lies. What Jesus says to us is this. You are what I have given you. You are what I have done for you. And you are what I say you are. 
And when you look at him at the cross and at Golgotha, can you think that he is saying anything to us like, you know, I just sort of begrudgingly tolerate you? He doesn't. He says something much differently. And that is the object of our trust. And that is the focus of our fight to care for the soul. I do not want to trivialize that comment, but I will say this. Something happened Wednesday night. I'm from Houston. You may congratulate me. But in the last several weeks, there are names that you may have heard who are on the ball club, like Correa and Altuve and Springer and Verlander and uh, Koiko and all those names. You've heard of them. And you know what? They're all going to get a ring. They won the series. They're world champions. You know what? There are two other names that you will probably never hear of again. Here's one. Asher Tolliver. Heard of it? You haven't. For the Astros, he played a grand total of four innings over a 162-game series. And he played so badly, they demoted him to double-A Arkansas, which is probably another version of purgatory. <laughs> Despite that, he's going to get a ring. Teoscar Hernandez. He played more games for the Toronto Blue Jays this year, but when he got traded to the Astros, he played a grand total of one and a half innings. Because he collided with second baseman Altuve, they had to cart him out on a stretcher. That was the extent of his season. He's going to get a ring. Why do I say that little silly little illustration? Because, yeah, there are folks that win all 162 games and all three rounds of the playoffs, and they're going to get a ring. But there are folks who contributed nothing to the effort, literally who actually contribute in contradistinction to the intention of the effort, and they're still going to get a ring. The gospel of Jesus Christ, folks, is that even if you did, you did nothing to contribute to the effort, and you might have actually done things that are in contrast to the intentions of that effort, but the Lord Jesus will come to you and put a ring on your finger and say, you're mine. That's the gospel. That's the object of our trust. And when you believe that, it's possible that hope may spring eternal. He's given you our prayer list. He's given us things to think about. He's given us tools with which to fight. And though there may be more to your struggle than what he provides, it is not less. And in that we fight. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.